the Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. We gather for ordered worship. The liturgy, music, and homily are offered in the praise of God for our gathered congregation here at Marsh Chapel, for our radio listenership in New England at WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership around the globe at WBUR.org. We welcome your prayerful and material support, your written or emailed responses, your self-selection of forms of ministry in our midst on this Together in Ministry Sunday, and as the Spirit moves, your presence with us on Sunday in worship. We gather to worship, to illumine the imagination by the beauty of God, to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to warm the heart by the love of God, and to devote the will to the purposes of God. As we are able in worship, let us stand in the praise of God.
May we pray together. Grant us, O Lord, to trust in you with all our hearts, for as you always resist the proud who confide in their own strength, so you never forsake those who make their boast of your mercy. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. We begin with a moment of confession and contrition. We will hear the book of Philemon almost in its entirety, in which Paul, though he could command, prefers to influence, to call upon the heart, to call upon your heart and conscience. As the choir sings our traditional Kyrie, may we bow in individual and silent confession. Let us pray. Beloved, hear good news. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from St. Paul's Epistle to Philemon, verses 1 through 21. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Apphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God, because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith towards the Lord Jesus. 
I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am appealing to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Please join in reading responsively verses from Psalm 139 with the Antiphon. have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum in, of them! I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to the end, I am still with you. Now, please rise as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri.
Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Glory to you, Lord. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ.
Please be seated. Your spiritual fulfillment in these years may come from an honest, full reading of scripture, an earnest, full exercise of reason, and an ample, full appreciation of tradition. Consider the verse, whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my student. You may have occasion to take a quiet walk this week on the esplanade, down through the public garden, along the emerald necklace, out on the beach. You promised last week to make a monthly ocean visit, did you not? As you walk, wander, wonder, as you saunter with a saintly step along, say, the Commonwealth Mall, ponder our scripture today. Luke's collections of sayings here, Luke 14, 25, in the middle of 10 chapters or so, Luke 9 to 19, that are Luke's own developed composition, including many of the most memorable teachings of primitive Christianity, the Good Samaritan, the Lost Coin, the Lost Sheep, the Prodigal Son, and others, are in all honesty somewhat inelegantly jumbled together, including our passage here, in ways that do not necessarily easily fully harmonize. Following Augustine's advice that a sermon in form should resemble the form of the scripture on which it is based, you here are offered in this sermon a collection of teachings that, in all honesty, are somewhat inelegantly jumbled together in ways that do not fully harmonize. Luke 14, 25 is composed near the end of the first century, the dating of Luke being somewhere between the writing of Mark in 70 AD and Luke's first citation and other sources in the second century. That is, the passage carries a hyperbolic dominical saying, not unlike the hyperbole in, if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out, setting distance, a disciplined existential distance, between self and parents, self and spouse, self and progeny, self and family, self and security. That is, following in faith, being a disciple, a student, will include sometimes loss and conflict. Striking, isn't it, how this prediction of leaving kith and kin, leaving home, intersects with the experience of coming to college. Our text is perhaps best understood in Matthew's rendering. Matthew and Luke both have received the sayings from a shared earlier document known by scholars as Q. Matthew writes, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. The use of the image of the cross here probably means it was originally composed in the preaching of the church not in the teaching of the Lord, whose cross was not yet, after all, at this point in the gospel narrative on the horizon. There is not a direct line, if there is any line at all, from Luke 14 in 90 AD or so to Jesus' teaching in 30 AD. Luke is addressed to men, that is, notice the absence, as Sharon Ringy reminds us, of husbands in the list of those mentioned a further indication that Luke, largely inclusive, by the way, in his Gospel of Women, is using a document he has inherited, Q. The reading does not reject the significance of everyday economic, social, familial, political, even military life. The many parables of tower and king keep our feet on the ground. That is, there is a real respect here for what we might call simply common sense, 
common sense. Prudent action is the essential theme. Luke 14 asks in a serendipitously timely and direct way for us, considering Syria, that we count the cost, the cost of a project, a plan, a conflict, the cost of going to war. Strictly speaking, the collection of sayings and many parables, again, written by Luke, some coming to us from the collection we call Q, then perhaps shaped by Luke, do not come to a neat conclusion in verse 33, the need to renounce all possessions, but the general point is clear enough. Discipleship costs. Nor in some is this a call to asceticism, but more a simple readiness for God's daily demand. Consider a second verse of scripture. What king going to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and take counsel, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? On this hypothetical walk this week, you might be thinking for a moment about Syria. You might be quietly thankful to live in a great country like ours wherein the uses of power with responsibility are considered and discussed where a president turns to a Congress for deliberation, debate, and vote, where women and men in military service serve others by serving the cause of peace and the keeping of the peace. If I were along with you, I might chime in with a heartfelt gratitude for the freedom of the pulpit, for the freedom of this pulpit over many decades. Our community has graciously over time listened to what it did not always like, and protected the statement of what it did not always affirm. That on your part is truly gracious. We should bluntly repeat that on these things, grave issues of war and peace, people of good heart and mind, good will and spirit can honestly differ and disagree and often do. You might also be thinking about religious teaching about war and peace. I notice by Google, by the way, that there is exactly one book of sermons in print addressing the war in Iraq, 2001-2007, just one. I happen to know the ISBN number by heart and can spell the middle name of the author. From several rehearsals here, Others with you on this walk might remember that our tradition, the Christian tradition, has two sorts of teachings, pacifism and activism. On the left hand, we have the earliest teaching, Matthew 5 and elsewhere, not to resist the evil one, a pacifist tradition with far more support than just the Mennonites, Quakers, Amish, and others. In fact, this chapel and its monument to King outside and our school of theology including my namesake, A-L-L-A-N, Alan Knight Chalmers, embraced pacifism over many years, years ago. If anyone smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. But our debate across the country today is more on the other hand, the right hand, if you will, Romans 13 and elsewhere, of just war theory. Here is the recognition, speaking of wisdom and innocence, serpents and doves, that justice for the lamb sometimes means resistance to the wolf. 
It will be easy, finger by finger, for you to remember walking the issues and questions in this second form of Christian teaching. You know them. Is the action responsive, not preemptive? Multilateral, not unilateral? Ameliorative, not imperial? Foresighted, not unforeseeable? Proportionately limited, not potentially limitless? In the particular case of Syria 2013, grateful for presidential leadership that is war-weary, if not war-weary, and willing to engage discussion, other questions may touch you as now studying as you are in a great university, you exercise your reason. What is the exact desired outcome? What the possible unintended consequences? Why 90 days for a one to two day missile shot across the bow? Who quietly or silently and for what reasons is propelling this? For an enforcement of an international norm to be real, must it be military or are there credible other options? Just what would a limited, proportional, meaningful deterrent be? Have we exhausted every serious form of serious diplomacy? What sorts of precedents are we setting? Alternatively, another set of questions. What are the costs to peace and order of inaction in the face of 1,400 gassed to death? Does not such a brazen breach of an important norm require response if such a norm is not completely to unravel? Is the country war-weary or war-weary or both? Can we say and do more for refugees, some two million today from Syria, than we have done? Is what is popular necessarily what is right? How are we truly and best to deliberate carefully, choose wisely, and embrace responsibility? What? are we going to do about this? For now, we, in the shadow of Luke 14 here, will raise these questions and watch and listen as the debate ensues this week. We shall affirm, though, listening to Luke 14, that the skeptical voices need carefully to be heard, both from within the church and from within the culture. Consider a third verse of scripture. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my student, my disciple. Your walk may bring you back past Mars Chapel. Think if you do about our time here two days ago on Friday afternoon. It was a beautiful sun-dappled bright Friday on Marsh Plaza. Thanks to the College of Arts and Sciences, ice cream was served from four formal stations. Hundreds came to partake. The chapel organ was booming as musicians prepared for a busy weekend. The Charles River glistened beyond the beach. Blue sky, cool air, communal gathering, and ice cream. A happy hour or two, September 6th. I watched as terriers, older and younger, sampled the ice cuisine. Some looked into the chapel, named for a Methodist minister, our fourth president, Daniel Marsh, as is the plaza itself.
Some squinted up at John Wesley above the front chapel door there in a robe reading his Bible, the founder of Methodism, an English Protestant movement in the 1700s. A couple finished their cones, looked in at the conic stained glass windows, glanced at the Methodist hymnals in the pews, looked up at, Martin, at, at Abraham Lincoln, not a Methodist himself, though his biography, personal faithfulness, social responsibility, epitomized the best of Methodism in his 19th century. Three young men ringed the Boston University seal next to the Martin Luther King Jr. monument and avoiding stepping on the seal, read its motto, crafted long ago by Daniel Marsh, a thoroughly Methodist triad, learning, virtue, piety. And I wondered, how could I briefly say to these hundreds just what lasting meaning the Methodist provenance of Boston University continues to have? What difference does it make that the university was founded in 1839 by John Dempster, a Methodist minister from upstate New York, who founded the theological seminary that later became our school? After all, BU today is a large, urban, non-sectarian, northern, private research university which includes women and men from the whole inhabited earth. What lingers out of our birth in Methodism? Learning lingers. The seal tells the story. From its inception in America, Methodism, more energetically than any other tradition, established schools and colleges from Beacon Hill, Boston, all the way to Route 66 and Claremont in California. Today, 128 universities, seminaries, and other schools beautify America, all fruit of an early love of learning exemplified by John Wesley himself. He an Oxford don, a classics scholar, a biblical theologian. Speaking of his beloved Bible, said Wesley, I desire to be homo unius libri, a man of one book, but Methodism never invested all authority in the Bible because learning about the Bible pointed Wesley and his followers to other truths in reason and tradition. Learning was the key. Again, my namesake, Alan Knight Chalmers, a mentor to King and others, implored his graduate students to read a book a day. That old saying, nihil humanum, nothing human is foreign to us, expresses the love of learning inherited from our Methodist past. Virtue lingers. But Methodism has more than academic rigor to offer us. We academics sometimes think if we write it down, we don't have to live it through. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Learning and virtue and piety, knowing and doing and being, if you will, are all part of becoming fully human. Methodism emphasized and emphasizes still the shared experiences in life that help to make and keep us human, that which has been believed always and everywhere by everyone. In essentials, unity. Non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. We are a people happy in God. And his last words, the best of all is, God is with us. 
Our BU history comes out of a movement of doers in the main. Dreamers, yes, doubters, too, but largely doers. They put a church in virtually every county in the country. They split north and south ahead of the Civil War over slavery. Having been poor, they ministered always and fully with the poor. They tithed, as most still do, giving away 10% of each year's earnings. Wesley put it in his own phrase, do all the good you can, for faith without works is dead. Our modern Boston University work with the Chelsea schools can stand as an example of a dozen other great BU transformative gifts which well up out of the ancient Methodist bone structure of this school. BU over 170 years has defined itself not by whom it excluded, but by whom it included. The children of the poor, the working poor, the working class, former slaves, people of color, different religious traditions when it was hard to do so, women and in our time, the otherwise able, the gay and lesbian community, internationals and others. Piety lingers. I admit this is a superannuated word. It sounds vaguely curiously cloistered, but what it means is vital, crucial, for you and me. That is, what we learn and how we act finally shape who we are. There is a lasting, soulful dimension to the human being, an ownmost self behind the public persona, a multidimensional person in the tradition of Boston University's own philosophical tradition of personalism, down deeper than the one-dimensional surface. At heart, for the Methodists, piety meant love. To love one another, even as God has loved us. Friends, if we are not both lovers and knowers, learners and lovers, we have left behind a huge part of our souls. But if we do live, love one another, these Methodists remind us, God abides in us and is made whole in us. There are many ways of keeping faith. The tolerant, magnanimous openness of Methodism at its best reminds us so. If thine heart be as mine, give me thy hand, said John Wesley. That is, under the seal on Marsh Plaza, on a sunlit, gleaming day, there lies the wonder and the promise of love after all, without love, without an experience of love, what is life for? Are we lovers anymore? Charles Wesley, John's 18th century musical brother, sang it this way in a hymn written for the opening of an elementary school in 1762. Unite the pair so long disjoined, knowledge and vital Piety. I have to think that these long-dead forebears would smile with delight at the next generation coming alive, knowing, doing, being, in a happy gathering in early September on Marsh Plaza, September 6th, Boston University. Beloved, hear the gospel, Luke 14, 25. 
Your spiritual fulfillment in college may include a leisurely walk or two, meditating on scripture, considering the current quandary of Syria, stopping in the sunshine of Marsh Plaza to think about our inheritance. That is, your spiritual fulfillment in these years may come from an honest full reading of scripture, an earnest full exercise of reason, an ample full appreciation of tradition. Amen. Dearly beloved, as we turn our hearts and minds to prayer, I would invite you to either remain standing, be seated, kneel, or come to the communion rail according to your tradition as we sing together our call to prayer. Lead me, Lord.
O Lord, you have searched us and know us. You know when we sit down and when we rise up. You discern our thoughts from far away. You search out our path and our lying down and are acquainted with all our ways. Even before a word is on our tongues, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem us in behind and before and lay your hand upon us. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us. It is so high that we cannot attain it. Dear God, the kings of our time go out to wage war against other kings. We pray that you will endow them with wisdom to sit down first and consider whether they are able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against them with 20,000. O oh God, if they cannot, then, while the other is still far away, may they send a delegation and ask for the terms of peace. How weighty to us are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. We try to count them. They are more than the sand. We come to the end. We are still with you. And with you we pray in the words that your Son, our Savior, taught us, praying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
The peace of the Lord be always with you. We greet you once again here in the nave of Marsh Chapel and invite you to participate in our ritual of friendship by putting your name and contact information in the red books found along the center aisle of each pew and passing that book along to your neighbor so that we can get to know you better and help you get to know one another better throughout the coming week. A couple of notes from the music department. One is that the Thurman Choir is starting up again. There's a white leaflet in your bulletin today. Uh, for those interested in joining the Thurman Choir, please be in touch with them through the leaflet or uh, by email. Also from the music department, uh, this afternoon at 3 o'clock will be the memorial service for Max Miller, longtime music director here at Marsh Chapel. We hope that many of you can be here for that. Also in your bulletin is a green leaflet indicating some of our opportunities on Sundays here at Marsh Chapel. I would encourage you particularly for two. One is God's House Rules, Christian Sustainable Practices. Uh, Ms. Jessica Chica, our chapel associate for Lutheran ministry, will be leading that at the Pavement Coffee House across the street uh, beginning at 1230. Also beginning this week, we will have a series of sermon talkbacks, or as Dean Hill likes to call them, sermon talk behind his back, uh, a gathering of people following the service led by Graylin Heidinger to discuss the sermon and the topics of the day. Uh, you can meet him uh, at the barbecue on the BU Beach following the service. We hope he will join us for food and fellowship and conversation. On the back of the green sheet uh, lists our four reading retreats for the semester. We hope that students here at Boston University will take this opportunity to join mind and heart study and spirituality uh, as, we, uh, as they prepare